These are the people who traded in their chips and changed their minds, all in the name of fresh air. And we're letting these folks interview each other. Each week, student becomes teacher and interviewee becomes interviewer. I'm Nick Mott, host of the show, and this is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, your source for outdoor gear, classes, and experiences. This being a podcast, you're listening to these stories. But there's a whole world of storytelling out there, a world of videos and images, things you can see. I've stepped away from my computer and moved behind a camera a lot lately, but I find it downright impossible to get the kind of pictures Keith Lidzinski manages to capture. Keith founded Three Strings Productions, and he takes photos for the likes of National Geographic, among many, many other outlets. With skills he learned as a punk skater kid, Keith's traveled the world making photos and videos, images so vibrant they make me wonder how they could possibly be real at all. Last episode, you heard from Gregory Critchlow, a bike maker. I guess I would, I would categorize myself as an old soul. And this is our final episode. We're back at Chocolate Spokes in Denver, and Gregory Critchlow's cats, Tiny and Marvin, who we bought to control the other animals around the place, are swarming around us. Your track record. <laughs> is that okay with the cat? Totally okay, okay. Yeah, Here's Gregory and Keith finding the similarities between a bike maker and a photographer. You know, when I was received the email from Nick about sitting down with you, I uh, received a link to the site and started to look at some of the imageries, uh, imagery that you have produced. And, um, you know, it was really kind of impressed, well, not kind of, but impressed by the... Uh, the focus on the, the subject, there's always the moment of maturity of maybe I can do something with this or you want to explore further. What was that moment? My moment, I think, was a little different than most people's in that I fell in love with photography pretty quickly into getting a camera. And I knew it was something I wanted to do with my life. But it took years and years of just shooting just for the sheer love of it and figuring out places to get your pictures published. And I you know, started working within the skateboarding community because I loved skateboarding. And so it was, I was naturally sort of gravitated to the magazines that I grew up reading and loved. And I wanted to be a contributor to those magazines. I also had this sort of polarized thing that I loved living in Colorado. I loved shooting landscapes and wildlife because that was the backyard that I knew, as well as skateboarding. And I did probably both styles of photography for a good five years before I started doing it professionally. However, I was publishing about four of those years. And I, I worked at Hewlett Packard. I was a programmer over there. And I, I kind of had golden handcuff syndrome, so to speak, where I had this job that I didn't hate. I liked it. And I was creatively fulfilled because it was writing code and working with the graphics and things like that. But my heart was really in photography. And the way that I ended up sort of becoming a full-time photographer was I got laid off from that job. And getting laid off was the best thing that ever happened to me because when you get laid off from a large company like Hewlett Packard, you get a severance package. It's kind of their way of apologizing. And for me, it was a little bit of runway, you know? And so I looked at the severance package they gave me and I looked at the you know, the companies and magazines I was publishing with. And I just made this silent decision in my head, which was, I want this more than anything. And now I've got enough money to survive for X amount of months. I had just bought a house. There was actually some real motivation. Those, those sort of like the whips of the bank kind of behind me, like cracking the whip and like, okay, you have to go make money if you want to keep this home. Yeah. And that 
that gave me motivation. You know, I, I've, it's funny. I've looked at that time in my life so many different ways. One of the ways was, man, if I if I could do it all over again, I would have just sold the house and had, you know, I would have had my wings were kind of clipped because I had I was sort of obligated to this debt. But at the same time, they gave me this level of motivation that who's to say what I would have had if I didn't necessarily have that thing that I was solely responsible for. For me, I didn't have to necessarily make that decision to be like, I'm doing this full time now. It was sort of given to me in a way. And I could have gone out and looked for another job, of course, but I wanted to be a photographer. And that was 12 years ago. I I feel like I made the right decision. I'm so happy. I mean, you're a business owner. You know what it's like when you when you're a business owner, you theoretically own your own time and your own schedule, even though you work five times harder than if you have a date, you know, nine to five job. I mean, for you, when did you make that decision? It's funny because I have a similar story And mine was more of a it is is a story of um, circumstance as well. And so I was working as a registered architect for a firm in 2009 hit and I was laid off as well, you know, as opposed to trying to pursue architecture still because I, it wasn't what my, where my heart was, you know, it just took that leap of faith. Unfortunately, I didn't have a severance package, but you know, I had, I had a daughter and I had, um, I just had my son. And so like the house, I had this understanding that I had to make it work. I still wanted to be in the creative levels of design and making. And, and so when you entered the shop, you know, it's funny cause you enter the shop and you're full service bike shop and you look at the bikes and then, your reaction is similar to others is that they come back here like, oh, you actually make the bike, right? And so that's where the creative process is fulfilling for me. But our situations are quite similar in terms of it's not just one of those days you're like, oh, I'm going to change my whole career. It's you're kind of pushed to do it. I know at least for myself and listening to your story, I think the house probably helped a lot in terms of the success because it gave you purpose. It gave you some kind of purpose. I think that's a good thing for anything. A lot of people, when they start their thing, it's, it's kind of just waffling. What am I doing? As opposed to the drive of, you know, making it work because they have to. I think it's good to have fear, you know, just, just something that is the catalyst to motivate you. I think it's good to get rejected in life. I think it's good to have major failures in life. I think it's good to have something that is pushing you because you don't want it to, you know, to lose the house was a big deal for me at the time. And I didn't, you know, so that gave me, I mean, I can't even imagine having two kids is a completely different level of need. You know, I, I think that takes a tremendous amount of courage to do what you did. My gosh, I have a, a handful of friends that they're, you know, they're, they're parents and for them to make a gigantic change within their life, it's, it's almost too much to even consider because it's really no longer about you. It's about, it's about kids, you know? So I feel lucky that in my life, Worst case scenario, if I lost the house, it wasn't the end of the world, you know. My life would go on living. Man, if you have kids, good on you. That's a big deal. So you're a programmer by trade, or were trained as a program. In terms of the educational process, I mean, I'm assuming that you went to school for software and, and programming, and then, you know, was uh, the photography something that was on the side? Was it something that was studied as well? What, how did that come apart? When I got exposed to photography, I was about 18 years old and I met up with my brother to go skate. He's three years older than me. So he'd long since moved out and we met up and he had a camera with him. And to me, I thought nothing of it. Right. It was like a 
didn't even surprise me. Of course, Scott's doing something kind of cool and creative. And he, he told, he showed me, he's like, Hey, I brought this camera. I thought today we could take turns just taking pictures of each other. And you know, it'd be kind of fun to get some photos. We'd never do anything like that. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. But I've, I have no idea how to use the camera. And he's like, piece of cake, dude, I'll show you how. And he, so he showed me the camera. It was all manual. And he showed me like, you spin this up here. This is the aperture ring and up here's the shutter and there's a needle. And if you can get the needle to be right in the center, that means that the camera's got a good exposure. And that's all you have to worry about. And then here's how you focus. I'm like, cool. So there was probably five or six of us. And we all kind of took turns at the camera as we went and skated around. And so I saw my brother like three days later and he had gotten like double prints from Walgreens or whatever. And he gave me some of these prints. And I was so excited, man, looking at, you know, just to remember the day in this in this way. About probably a month later, I got my income tax return from whatever, you know, summer job I didn't work. I think I got like $300 or something. And I called my brother up right away and I said, hey, man, I, I just got my income tax check. I want to buy a camera. Would you help me buy one? He met me like later that day and we went from like pawn shop to pawn shop. And I just wanted the exact same camera he had because it made sense to me. I didn't want to learn to be a photographer, but I wanted to have a camera. And so I started pouring all my time into taking pictures. And I, it started, my camera started coming with me everywhere. So be it mountain biking outside, which is something I love to do, or going out skateboarding, I'd always bring my camera and just snap photos. And eventually it started sort of taking over the other hobbies I loved. I was almost more interested in taking pictures of them. And my education came from books and failure. And it's funny, I, to answer your other question with software programming, I, it's, this is almost revealing to myself. It's almost like therapy right now, thinking about it. I, I wasn't formally trained as a programmer. I was really lucky. It was right around the dot-com boom. I was working in Hewlett Packard as a, a manufacturing line, just like soldering and building stuff. And I'd work eight hours a day when I was get off of work, I'd go rock climbing or skateboarding or go take pictures. I just did the things I liked outside of work. And I ended up getting a job as a technical writer, which is working with engineers, just sort of proofreading the workflow things we're doing, pretty boring type stuff. And that worked its way into an HTML kind of position because the dot-com boom was happening and they needed to buff up their intranet inside. And so they were willing to just train people. And I just kind of got really obsessed with learning how to code. And then I started going to school. You know, they paid for school and I was going to night school at the time, but I never got a degree. That's how I learned. It was mostly just ground up and looking at other stuff online and just sort of doing it through myself, probably failing a lot more. Had I gone to school, but I had this opportunity in front of me, so I sort of pounced on it, you know, and I did that for six years, I think. One of the things, you know, you touched on, uh, especially when you're talking about your uh, brother presenting this camera to you and then having that lollipop in the middle and stuff like that. And so we're talking about more the the manual photography. Um, and now with this digital photography, because I, I bought my first real camera last year because I had to take photos of product. And actually my uncle was a photographer and I, I had some of his old equipment and I, just, I didn't know how to use it. But this is an argument in all the, or discussion in all kind of the creative process, you know, the analog versus digital. What you said is about 19 years ago. I mean, digital was, was not, I mean, it was just coming on. I know digital cameras were probably like, what, $2,500 at that, at that point. It's just, it'd be interesting if you were to, you know, take somebody on and teach them photography, would you send them back to an analog system? I'm grateful for learning sort of on an analog setup, but uh, man, the learning curve was a lot slower. 
I will say that patience that I had early on, like taking, you know, 36 pictures, that went out the window, man. As soon as I got a digital camera, I became way more heavy handed. I think I started expanding as a photographer because I could start taking chances and they, there was nothing monetarily attached. I didn't have to worry about running out of film. And you, and you also can tell right away, is this working? Or is it not working and move on? I'm grateful for that time. But I think if I was to give advice to a budding photographer, it would, it would just be to learn your camera the best you can, as quick as you can, but start focusing on creativity. And I think that most any artist, I would say, unless you're extremely eccentric and, and kind of a, a, an early genius, emulation is a natural thing to see something you like and try to recreate it and sort of you know, share a little bit of what this person that you really appreciate, like whatever this photographer or artist has done, you can kind of like learn whatever that formula is. And then over time, you, it takes a while to find your voice. I'm sure as someone who builds bikes, there was, there was probably things when you first got into it where you were looking at how something was done and you sort of emulated it and you probably did your research. But then over time, you, you know, when you understand it, is when you can start adding to it and then you really find yourself you find your real voice then i think that's a really great way to understand it because i teach architecture and i still will pound on them you need to learn how to draw a line going into how you've moved forward and things of this nature like i was noticing before in terms of the exposures that you do on your site i mean they're just they're amazing in terms of everything that comes together and the environments are almost surreal in the way they are projected, except the subject is real. In your travels, I mean, what are you really looking for and how do you bring those things out? If you're looking at my website, you don't have to look at all the bad photos I've taken. You know, this is just curated down. It's interesting when you're, when I'm shooting, I do generally know when something is working. And a lot of times that has it becomes almost formulaic in the sense that the light's good, your subject is exciting, your background is exquisite, you're somewhere kind of cool and different and unique. And all of those things formulaically build into making a good photograph. So when you, you know, if, if I'm traveling somewhere abroad, like if I'm down in Chile, for instance, in Torres del Paine, under this beautiful backdrop, you know, all of a sudden my job is easier. I'm like, okay, backdrop, check. Then it's just waiting for light and moment and for something to transpire if it's being directed in or if it's naturally happening. I think you just start to get a, a better understanding the more you do something of, of when the moment is, is right. You really do shoot a lot of bad pictures trying to make things work. But yeah, over time, you just start, like anything, you, you start to recognize a cut of light or you recognize the gesture and maybe an athlete did something while they were doing this thing they were doing for you on camera and you, and you see it and then you, you can start actually diving in and trying to build it out. Or you're with some really cool indigenous culture and they just have character built in and all of a sudden you start honing in. And that is the beauty of photography is it teaches you to look past the bigger picture and start breaking different things down and you start noticing smaller things and they help you photograph bigger things. I think it's just refinement over time. Just like in architecture or, or designing bikes and these different things, you start to see things that work and just immediately probably push aside the things that just don't. That is what, that's the beauty of the experience. Understanding the journey that you've gone in terms of the photography, you start with just taking photos and the photos start to mean something 
And then you have a certain element of this is the story I want to tell. And, and with that story becomes a dialogue of your actual voice. When did you start to understand that? And when did you start to shape that voice? When you first get into any art medium or architecture, uh, which is certainly a form of art, anything that we're trying to become a professional at, you initially emulate, right? That makes perfect sense. Even when you're learning basic arithmetic, whatever it is, you, you know, you have to memorize and emulate. You have to figure out the way things work. For me, when I first started shooting, I bought a how-to photography book on landscape photography. It was solely about nature. And it really was my gospel, man. I, I looked at every one of those pictures and I tried to make pictures of my own that represented them, sometimes as close to them as I could get. And it wasn't pictures I was like trying to sell or do anything with. I was too young to even know how to do anything like that. But it was to validate like, okay, I have an understanding of how this looks and I'm proud of this picture. For about a year, you know, I read the entire book cover to cover and I would go out and use all the techniques it explained and I was trying to take pictures that looked that way. And after about a year of doing that, I, I felt stronger in my photography and I sort of stopped looking at that book, but I had all of this reference in my mind and I didn't realize it at the time, but it was like a tiny graduation for me in the sense. And I think that was the beginning of finding my voice. And for me, I had two styles of photography that I really liked. I liked the skateboarding photography, which you had to use exterior flashes, like you had to bring your own strobes and light things because a lot of that was happening at night. Landscape photography was done in quality light where you'd have to hike into remote places and sort of be patient and wait for something beautiful to happen and uh, work really hard to sort of find those compositions. And I was trying to emulate things I saw in books and in magazines in both of those mediums. And eventually the two sort of merged. I started taking pieces of the skateboarding work I was doing and pieces of the nature work I was doing and combining them together. And a lot of it was subconsciously. I, I was just doing it because it was helping me to sort of take a picture I wanted to shoot. And that, that was when I started getting work. And I didn't realize it at the time. It took years before I could look back on it and sort of see like, okay, I started really publishing here. Like, what was it? And I look at the work. It looked less like the work I was seeing and more like work that I had created. And I'm stealing a quote from a guy named Jeremy Collins who I did an interview with a handful of years ago. We live in a social media world these days where you could pick up your phone and if you're on Instagram, for instance, you could see any number of beautiful photographs depending on what feeds you're following. And I think photographers these days can run the risk of being infected or influenced or or inspired. There's these different things you could, you could emulate too hard. Right. And this was something that Jeremy told me. There's a danger of becoming too influenced or inspired. There's a, there's a fine line in the middle there. And when he said it, it was, it, it's so true. You finding your own voice is extraordinarily hard. You know, it could take 10 years to figure out a technique. You can give it away in 10 seconds. I ask that question because I'm still trying to find mine, right? It's one of those things that you're always striving to understand. And even you saying you're, you're still finding your voice, I'm still finding my voice. I think if, if you ever stop sort of, you know, I'm using air quotes right now, finding your voice, that you probably are falling out of love with that thing that you do because that one of the most enjoyable parts about being a creative person is the struggle and the thing's not working out. I mean, it's that classic bittersweetness in life where if you had everything, you'd be bored. 
And so it's so fun to, to struggle and fail. And, and I think things get easier over time for any professional that's been in the game long enough. Of course, there's going to be an endless book of go-to tricks that make things work. But I feel like you should always have a personal project if you're an artist. You should always have something on the side that you're not even trying to show other people. It's just something you're doing. I meet a lot of musicians that are in big bands, and it's interesting because most of them are usually learning an instrument they didn't know how to play, or they're listening to new music that most people wouldn't even be interested in. Their ear for arrangement is so beyond what the average music listener is. And it's interesting to me hearing these conversations because they're trying to grow. And it's kind of classic if you have like a favorite band and they come out with a new album and and you don't like it. That happens all the time. And it's that artist is just trying to grow. They don't want to crank out the same thing. They want to expand, you know. And and so like, dude, if you went out and made the craziest bike tomorrow and everybody hated it, you'd probably have some fulfillment within that, that you crack the code to something and it might lead to this next big thing. I think if you if you feel like you found your voice, it's probably time to quit. You said you enjoy mentoring and working with people. And it, it sounds like you take on that kind of philosophy as well as you're opening yourself up to for people to learn from and then is there a specific person that you felt that you learned the most from i am so grateful to get a hard critique from somebody today anytime in my life i can get one i would prefer a hard critique that is genuine it's one thing if it's coming from a dark negative place obviously but if it's if someone's giving me a true critique that even if it's cutting I will grow tremendously more from that than I will from somebody that's sort of glad handing you through it and, and telling you they like it. And I think that's true for anybody. But you also have to be willing to take that abuse, so to speak, even if it's not meant to be abused. It's still hard to hear if you put your heart into something and somebody tells you that it's terrible and they break down why it's terrible. And, they, and, it's, and it's really true. <laughs> that's hard to swallow. But that makes you grow quicker than anything. I think that's one of the most important things in life is to be able to take genuine criticism. One of the first jobs I had when I bought my camera, I worked the night shift at a manufacturing facility. And I worked 2.30 to 11 at night. And I had a routine where in the morning I'd go out and I'd take a bunch of pictures, I'd take slides, and right before work I would pick up my slides. And then on my first break I would go and look at the pictures I shot that day. And I wasn't trying to be a photographer, I was too young. I was, I was just shooting pictures because I loved it and it gave me something fun to do. And I had this crummy job. And there was this guy that used to come into the break room every now and then and he'd see the pictures I was looking at and he'd look at them and he'd usually have something pretty harsh to say about them. And then over time, he started just kind of hanging out with me. And he's like, oh, shoot more pictures. And he'd look at these pictures and have something to say about them. But usually whatever it was he had to say actually had a tinge of truth to it. But it was delivered really harshly. So about six months of this went by. And, and it came to the point where I was, I was about, I think I was 19 years old at the time. And I was too timid to tell this guy what I thought of him. But over time, he started to become kind of endearing, even if he was kind of giving me these tongue lashings. I was growing as a photographer because a piece of me was like, I want to take a picture that kind of shuts this guy up. I started taking pictures that were better and I started getting a little bit of nice encouragement from him. It was cool. It kind of, we bonded as friends. And right before I left the job was when he told me that he brought a book in one day and he, and he said, oh, I thought you'd enjoy seeing this. I think I had like a week left. I'd given my two weeks notice and I was leafing through the book and 
and I got to one at like page 90 or whatever, and there was a whole chapter dedicated to him and his work. And it was beautiful work too. He shot in all black and white, four by five film, like really, really beautiful. And uh, I was like, oh my God, this is you. It's like, I just wanted to say, it's been really great getting to know you over this last year. You've actually got me inspired to take pictures again. I, I was a professor of photography for like 20 years and I got so jaded with the business and, and just the art itself that I just kind of put my camera down and I moved to Fort Collins and I was kind of working down in this area, blah, blah, blah. Gave me a story, but essentially he dropped that in my lap and I was like, oh my God, whoa, that's amazing. How come you never brought that up? And he didn't bring it up. He didn't want to talk about it. You know, he wasn't trying to hide anything. But he saw how excited I was about this thing. And he got to see my photography grow in a year. And I think he felt good about it because he had a heavy hand in that. I was lucky to have a person like that in my life. And those are some of the hardest critiques I've ever gotten to this day were from this guy. And they helped me tremendously. Man, I hope to have 20 more of those people in my life. Oh, I know how it needs to be filleted. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I tell my students, Right before the final jury, so we, you know, we jury at the end of the semester. You know, you put a lot of time, you put a lot of your heart and soul into this project, and but now it's time for you to step back, and and you know have a a separation from it because you know you need to listen to the critique, and it's hard for a lot of people. Do you find it hard for yourself, or you know, can you can you make that separation, or is it something? I mean, it's always going to be a part of you, right? I mean, when I when I send out a bike, it's like a bittersweet moment. You know, it's bitter because like I put so much time into this, and now I don't get to touch it anymore. But it's sweet because like, well, now I can pay my bills. <laughs> but you know, do you find it hard to have that separation in filmmaking? when something's done and out the door, kind of like a bike that you've made, I generally just see the flaws. I see the shortcomings in it. I see the things that I wished I would have had more time to do better or whatever. Photography is more forgiving, I think, because you're dealing with single moments. You hope they're good and powerful moments. You can do a, You can go out and shoot a terrible story. It's possible for sure, of course. With a film, you go out and let's say you, you shoot for X amount of time. Let's say you shoot for a month then you have to go live with it for five months while you edit it. And there's any number of ways it can go. And it's probably the same when you're building a bike. Like there's, especially since you're building them ground up, if you make a bad decision in a certain part of that, it's the whole thing is compromised and all of a sudden it's not the product you wanted. But you probably get to stage seven and it's impossible unless you want to restart. That's tough, man. It's a hard decision, but you learn tremendously from those. As someone, not even just specific photography, but just anything creative, and you know, they they have this inkling or idea in their head. Has there ever been uh, a talking point that you've helped someone understand? Okay, this could be potentially something that you could really do. Are there words of wisdom? Like, for instance, I will say, you know. You don't know unless you really kind of investigate, but you have to do it in a way that is informed. Because in architecture, there's plenty of architects that will tell you, you're not going to make any money, you're going to be struggling all the time. And it's like, so who's going to be the architect, right? If you keep discouraging. But, you know, are there any specific things that you would say to someone that is just figuring out any creative process that you know they could push further it's funny that sounds like photography you're not going to make any money you're going <laughs> to you're going to hear no a lot or whatever else i would say and I, I think this is a little more global if you find something you love i think it's deeply important to 
to pursue it. I think it's really important to have a creative outlet in life. Okay, there's two types of motivation, right? There's intrinsic motivation and there's extrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation, of course, is something you do because you love it and you're gonna do it regardless of compensation. Extrinsic motivation is your job. You're gonna go there because you get a paycheck at the end of the month and you get to sustain yourself. I hate invoicing people. Dude, I hate invoicing people. I hate (laughs) the process of getting the money should be this joyful experience. I hate it, dude. I just want to be behind my camera doing the thing I love, which is childishly selfish. But that's how much I like it. You know, I imagine you'd rather be in here working on a bike and exercising that therapeutic thing you get from that more than you would ringing someone out and watching the bike go out the door. You do that because you have to, but you know, it's two different levels of fulfillment. They're both extraordinarily necessary. Your peak passion peaks much faster at extrinsic motivation than intrinsic motivation. So the importance of doing something for the sheer love of it it helps the mind. It doesn't necessarily monetarily help you. You're lucky if you're one of those people in life that gets to merge the two passions. We are both extremely lucky people, but we've had to climb all kinds of greasy rungs to sort of figure that out and to get to that position. It's very difficult. Well, I appreciate you coming by the shop. Thank you for accommodating me, but it's been a great conversation and I appreciate it. It's kind of funny that you, we were paired together. I have um, an uncle, and I'll show you his work because it's hanging up on the walls, that he was a, a photographer. And, you know, I never had the opportunity to, to have this conversation with him because he died when he was 29. And so I was only in seventh grade. And um, my parents didn't even take me to his funeral. So I didn't even really, I mean, I knew him as a really little person because he'd hang out with us. But I didn't have this conversation. And it would just, I've been longing to have that conversation because my grandfather was also a drafts person and never had that conversation either because he died when I was young too and so I always love to have these dialogues with people who are in that field. I feel like people that build and create things I don't care if you're putting in tile or hardwood floors in people's houses or if you're creating brilliant fine art people that build and design things can see eye to eye because there's a process involved and things have to happen in a specific way. That's one of the cool things when you start, you know, working within any type of community where people design, create, build, that it's, it's like a camaraderie. There's like a, a brotherhood, so to speak. This season you heard from and were hopefully inspired by an ultra runner, a farmer, a mountaineer, a nutrition expert, an adaptive climber, a bike shop owner, and a photographer. And even though all their hobbies and interests and passions are different, they all found a love of getting outside. It's been my pleasure to introduce you to these amazing humans, and we hope that these stories encourage you to get out and explore. Don't forget to check out REI.com blog for more cool stories of a life outside. And you don't have to be that sad that our season's over because Shelby Stanger has a wonderful podcast called Wild Ideas Worth Living. And if you like Take It From Me, you'll definitely dig this one too. It's all about the people who take bold steps into the unknown, and you can find it at wildideasworthliving.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Take It From Me, the podcast from REI, the co-op that helps you get outside through gear, classes, and experiences. REI is dedicated to protecting the places we play, And they believe that a life outdoors is a life well lived. And I don't think advice gets any better than that. So get outside and find your next adventure.